Good morning. Thank you. I appreciate the feedback. I think it's it's most appropriate that the the songs that uh, were chosen so far this morning have really uh, dwelt on the greatness and the magnificence of God, and it it really uh, sets the context uh, for what we'll be talking about overall in this series, but also specifically what we'll be talking about today. Uh, the series, uh, for those of you who uh, were here last week when Randy kicked it off, is entitled Text. And the idea is that God is communicating with his people all the time. And for today, the, the title of today's message is Sender God. Now, I've got to admit uh, right up front that I am uh, challenged as far as texting goes. <clears throat> so I think I received my first text message about six months ago and probably haven't sent ten text messages in my life. And, in fact, actually, after one of the things that I was talking about in the first service, uh, a couple people corrected me that my uh, texting etiquette was wrong, which is good. You know, you need to be, uh, you need to be corrected. Last week, uh, Randy sort of set this up as he said that in many respects, the Bible is God's text message to us, his people. He spoke about God's word being written down by people like you and I, but inspired by God through his Holy Spirit to write his words to us. This morning, we're going to spend our time uncovering and beginning to understand how we know and how we can have confidence that the words that are contained in the Bible really are God's word to us or God's text message to us. When you receive a text message, how do you know who sent it? As I was Thinking this through, I thought, you know, I don't, I don't know that. I, I don't know if it's the same as email or not. So I sent a text message to myself. And lo and behold, I looked and found it came from me. And I knew that I had sent the text message. But when you receive a, a text message, there's a name or an address that's on there. So you have an idea of who sent it. And as you see who sent it, you can begin to form your own opinion on whether this is an authentic text message or not. I know in uh, the email world, uh, you know, we have this whole category called spam, uh, which quite honestly, most stuff that we get probably should go uh, into there. And, 
and you know, and, and that spam is sort of a filter of things that are authentic and things that are not authentic. But believe it or not, if the Bible, as we're uh, stating this morning, is really God's message to us, God's text message to us, then we should be able to authenticate who that sender is. And, you know, we're going to spend our time uh, this morning doing just that. But as, as I begin to think about the idea of the Bible as God's text message to us, and, and this is where I got my facts uh, wrong last time, that well, the Bible, this is actually true, uh, depending on which version you look at, the Bible has approximately 780,000 words. Uh, if you were to Google that, uh, depending on the translation and stuff, it, it goes from about 770,000 to about 820,000 words. So say just you know about 780,000 words. Uh, if a text message allows about 100, and, I think I was I was correct at 120 characters. Uh, now Ian tells me now. <laughs> See, I'm paying attention. But just for the sake of argument. Uh, there's a limited number of things that you can send in a text message for God to have sent us this message. It would take something like 5,200 text messages for us to get the entirety of the Bible. And every year, just in the United States, about 25 million Bibles are sold. I stopped to think about that, and I thought, man, that's a lot of texting. So I know how I feel after uh, just texting somebody, yes. <laughs> and I'm of the generation that capitalizes and likes punctuation. And that's really tough, because then you've got to figure out where all that stuff is. So God took a lot of trouble to get his word in our hands and to us. Why should we believe that the Bible is from God? Why should we believe that the Bible is true? To start with, what do we mean when we say that the Bible is the inspired word of God? Well, we get the idea throughout the scripture but perhaps the, the most popular uh, scriptural passage that's quoted in, to, in talking about the inspiration of the Bible is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. And Timothy tells us, All scripture is inspired by God and is useful in teaching, rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Wasn't it cool how we changed the slide where it looked like a, a text message? I was hoping somebody would notice that. As I, we had fun with that. But all scripture is inspired. In uh, the Greek language in which the, the New Testament was written, the, the word inspired comes from a Greek word, theonoustos. Theonoustos, which literally means God breathed. What does it mean to be God-breathed? And as, as I was thinking about this, the, uh, the idea came in mind of a person requiring um, mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. 
somebody is breathing life into them. If they don't do that, there's a good likelihood that person will die, that the, the giver's breath is really, really critical, is really, really important to the person who needs it. And if you think about inspiration in that same idea, God's life-giving words spoken to those whom he chose to write the books that we call our Bible. Uh, So God literally breathed the life of his word into them so that we could enjoy and read and learn from his his word today. A contemporary theologian by the name of Norman Geisler uh, really explained inspiration, I think, in a great way. Dr. Geisler said, Inspiration does not mean simply that the writer felt enthusiastic, like Handel composing the Messiah, nor does it mean that the writings are necessarily inspiring, like an uplifting poem. As a process, it refers to the writers in the writing being controlled by God. As a product, it refers to the writings only, as documents that are God's message. To be inspired, theonostos, really means to be controlled by God. As you read through the different books of the Bible, you'll see that God didn't take away the individual's personalities. As you read, you'll find the books are written very, very differently, but they have one thing in common, and that one thing that they have in common is that they are the words that God gave us under the supervision of his Holy Spirit so that we have the opportunity to understand more about him as his children. We believe, and at any time uh, I'm given the opportunity to, to speak or to teach, it's hard for me not to throw at least a few theological words out. And for today, the way we believe uh, in theological terms, what we believe about the inspiration of the Bible is we believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible. What does that mean, verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible? It means a couple of things. It means that not only do we believe that words are inspired by God, the words that God spoke to those who penned the Bible were inspired by God, but we believe that the entire Bible is inspired. Uh, You will find other uh, religions or sometimes even other denominations that you, you would identify as Christian denominations stopping short of that and saying, well, certainly parts of the Bible are inspired. We'll pick and choose what those are, but we just can't believe that the entire Bible is inspired. Well, that's where we differ from them, and that's where Orthodox Christianity differs from them. We believe that every word in the Bible is inspired by God as a whole, not just a small uh, part of it. We also believe, and, and the Bible really has proven itself over and over and over again, that the Bible isn't limited to just religious truths. 
Uh, some people will just pick and choose the, oh, the, uh, the religious stuff or the theological stuff and might say, well, it wasn't intended to be a book of history. It wasn't intended to be a book of geography. It wasn't intended to be a book of science. And so I'm going to choose what I'm going to believe from the Bible and leave it at that. But the Bible has been shown time and time again to be theologically, historically, geographically, and scientifically accurate as well. Over the centuries, uh, it's really quite an amazing thing that archaeology, for instance, hasn't disproven something that's talked about in the Bible. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Uh, When there's been a discrepancy between archaeology and the Bible, in every case, over time, as things are found, the Bible has been proven to be geographically or archaeologically accurate. Uh, The Bible has been proven over and over again in its historical accuracy. The Bible talks about different places and different people in different times. And in the cases where the Bible has been at odds with history, over time, the Bible has always come out to be correct uh, in terms of names, in terms of dates, in terms of places. The Bible, uh, believe it or not, uh, talked about the spherical shape of the world thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago before science even thought about that. Lots and lots of scientific evidence is contained in the Bible. And even Jesus, as he's talking about the Bible, believes that it's more than just a book for uh, you know, pithy religious sayings. In John chapter 3, verse 12, Jesus tells us, I've told you earthly things, or if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Jesus himself is telling us that both of these parts of the Bible are equally true. Those things that have spiritual significance and those things that might just be, uh, as Jesus would describe them, earthly. Talking about geography, talking about people, talking about places. And so Jesus has really started off by saying, this is how I feel about Scripture. Oftentimes, as we're talking with uh, maybe family members or neighbors or people that we work with or people that we go to school with, uh, they find out that that we go to church, they find out we we are Christ followers, they might say, well, how, how can you believe the Bible? It's just a collection of fairy tales and, you know, some of it's good and some of it's bad. How do you believe the Bible? And so often we're stuck by trying to uh, defend the Bible with the Bible as an example. Uh, Somebody would say, you know, the Bible is just a bunch of mumbo jumbo. And I might say, well, no, the Bible says that it is the inspired word of God. It is it is God breathed. Well, what I'm doing is engaging in what's called circular reasoning. I'm using the Bible to defend the Bible. So this morning, we're going to go a little bit beyond that. And we're going to go into uh, society. We're going to go into the realms 
uh, of literary criticism and look at why we really should believe, why we believe that the evidence leads us to the fact that the Bible is indeed God's word. To start with, the Bible contains an amazing amount of fulfilled prophecy. Prophecy, sort of by definition, is somebody predicting in advance things that are going to happen before they actually uh, happen. And the Bible is filled uh, with these prophecies. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 tell us, Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. The idea, again, in the Greek language of being carried along is sort of a nautical theme. The idea is a boat being driven by the wind, the wind causing uh, a boat to move. And, and what Peter is telling us is those who penned this prophecy were moved by God, were prompted by God to move in this direction of prophecy. Prophecy, again, is a, it's, a, it's a scary thing. In order to, there's only one job description for a biblical prophet. You have to be 100% right 100% of the time. And that goes without saying in all of the Bible. Nobody else is held to that uh, strict a standard. Contained within the Bible are about 2,500 different prophecies about all sorts of things. To date, <clears throat> excuse me, something over 2,000 of these prophecies have already been fulfilled. Those that haven't been fulfilled yet are indicated in Scripture as things yet to come and things that will be fulfilled. So as I look back on the last few thousand years of history and I can quantify all these different prophecies in the Bible and I can see areas in which all these different prophecies have been fulfilled, I begin to get a sense that perhaps what I see in the Bible is worthy of trust because of fulfilled prophecy. For the sake of time this morning, we're just going to talk about a couple of examples. Back around 750 B.C., a long time ago, there was a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah by the name of Isaiah. Now, we talked about Isaiah two weeks ago. Uh, as Isaiah, in his 53rd, no, the 53rd chapter of his book, prophesied the coming of Messiah. But elsewhere in Isaiah's uh, writings, he made a very specific prophecy. Now, today there you know, are, are uh, fortune tellers and seers and people like that who, for a fee, will try to tell you what's going to happen to your life. And you talk with them and they sort of speak in broad terms about things that uh, you know, might very easily be fulfilled by any number of instances in history. Biblical prophecy is quite different. In this particular prophecy... In 750 B.C., Isaiah predicts that a king by the name of Cyrus is going to defeat Babylon and is going to allow the Hebrews to return to Jerusalem 
to restore and rebuild the city. What's so exciting about that? Well, Cyrus wasn't to be born for 150 years. And Isaiah didn't foretell a king. He said King Cyrus. He named Cyrus 150 years before he was born. Isaiah continued on and to say that the, the Hebrews would be returned to their land to rebuild the city. Well, at the time, nobody cared about Babylon. Babylon wasn't a power. Uh, and the southern kingdom of Israel wasn't in captivity. And so you think about it from the perspective of those who heard this prophecy at that time. That's quite a thing. Some guy that we don't know of, all these things are going to happen, but Israel's not in captivity. They have no place to return to. There's nothing wrong with Jerusalem. And who's Babylon anyway? 150 years, Cyrus became the king of the Medo-Persian Empire. 30 years after that, the Medo-Persian Empire defeated Babylon and allowed the Hebrews to return to rebuild and destroy Jerusalem. Second prophecy comes from the book of Daniel. Uh, And it also uh, really references this whole idea that was started off by Isaiah. In Daniel's prophecy, uh, he talks about certain things that have to occur before the Messiah came. We know from Isaiah that the Messiah was coming. Daniel got a little bit more specific. In his prophecy, he said, there will be a time when there will be a command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And from that time, there will be 483 years will pass until the Messiah will come. Well, the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem is a historical date that we know, given by King Artaxerxes, uh, March 14, 445 B.C., in case anybody wanted to know that. Um, and so it seems quite easy to do the calculations. And for years and years, the math didn't make sense until somebody discovered, or somebody thought, that in those days they didn't operate under our 365-day Gregorian calendar. They operated under a 360-day Babylonian calendar, and every now and then threw in an extra day to catch up. As you do the math, 483 years is 183,770 days. From the day that Artaxerxes uh, gave his command to, uh, to allow the, the Jews to go back and restore and, and rebuild Jerusalem, to the day that Jesus entered Jerusalem for the last time on Passion Week, as we talked about last week, was, guess what? 173,880 days. Pretty impressive. I could go on and on and on, and you hope I don't, and so do I, as we have stuff to do this afternoon. But fulfilled prophecy is an amazing thing. Um, Those of you who have a scientific uh, bent to you understand the idea of probability. We've already said that 2,000 of the 2,500 prophecies have already been documented fulfilled. A scientist by the name of Hugh Ross Uh, did some calculations that if 13 prophecies 
not tied together by people, not tied together by time or place. If 13 prophecies were to be fulfilled, what would the probability be of just 13, not 2,000? One times 10 with 138 zeros after it. And so those of you who uh, need science to help you believe, take that and think about it and think about the probability of all of these prophecies, all of these prophecies being fulfilled over time. It's amazing. Randy started talking a little bit last week uh, about uh, the idea of our copies of the Bible. You might know or you might guess that today we have no original copies of the Bible. Nothing. Everything that we have are transcriptions and copies of copies. So how do we know that what we have is what God intended us to have? Randy spoke last week about the idea of, a, in, in, in the field of literary criticism, the closer a copy is in date to the original or the autograph, the more likely it is to be consistent with them. Jumping now to secular history, let's talk about Plato and Aristotle. Everybody knows who they are. And historians, philosophers don't have problems that Plato and Aristotle wrote what they wrote. Now, um, with Plato, uh, he has uh, one particular work called Tetralogies. Uh, There are seven copies of part of it uh, that are in existence. And the earliest copy is about 1,200 years older than the original. From Aristotle, none of his works have any more than 49 copies. And the, the, the closest original to copy for any work of Aristotle is 1,400 years separating the two. But historians and philosophers don't doubt the veracity of the writings of Plato and Aristotle. Let's look at the New Testament. Uh, there are uh, in our hands right now 5,300 copies of all or part of each book of the New Testament in the Greek language. There are uh, another 10,000 copies of all or part of the New Testament in Latin from uh, a writing called the Latin Vulgate. And then in addition to that, there are about another 9,300 various copies uh, or portions of copies of the New Testament. Over 24,000 pieces of antique evidence for the existence of the Bible versus, you know, the best that we can do uh, for literature of antiquity is Homer's Iliad, and there are 643 copies of it. And we've seen the span of time uh, between the autograph of the original and the first copy. For the New Testament, as Randy talked about last week, the time span for the earliest of the writings is 25 to 30 years. And within 125 years of the writings of the New Testament, we have entire manuscript copies of the whole Bible. And so we find ourselves in very close proximity to the original. So that, again, using literary criticism, using the science that uh, 
the secular world would use would lead you to believe that what we have is really pretty good. Let's talk about the Old Testament for just a second. Have you heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? Why are the Dead Sea Scrolls important? Before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, there was about a 12 or 1300 year gap from the earliest or the most recent copies of the Old Testament to the next most recent copies, uh, which would have been uh, written in the 9th and 10th century. When the, the Dead Sea Scrolls were uncovered, there were about 600 scrolls, and in those scrolls, every book in the Bible, with the exception of Esther, has been repeated, at least in part. And not only is, is that exciting, but these scrolls date to about 100 B.C., or so predate anything else by about a 1,000 years. And so we can take these Dead Sea Scrolls and compare them to the next most recent scrolls that were written in the 9th and 10th centuries B.C., and we find that there's an accuracy rate, or a purity rate as they call it, of 99.5% over a period of a 1,000 years. And that 0.5% is essentially uh, what we would consider typos, misspellings, uh, nothing that has anything to do with the meaning of any text. And so based on the way the Bible has been transmitted over the centuries, we have great confidence that the Bible we have today is what was penned by those original authors. And then finally, as we wrap up, Uh, It only seems to make sense that we find out what did Jesus think about the Bible? What was his opinion? We learned last week that Jesus rose from the dead. Randy presented a lot of uh, compelling evidence for us to believe that given the circumstances, the best explanation is that Jesus did rise from the dead. And so if Jesus rose from the dead, I want to listen to what he has to say about the Bible. And so what did Jesus say? What was his opinion regarding the scriptures? Jesus talked about Abel, Noah, Abraham, Sodom, and Gomorrah, Lot, Isaac, Jacob, man of the snake in the desert, David, Solomon, Elijah, Elisha, Jonah, Zechariah, and Moses. Uh, He talked about the creation account in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. And when, when Jesus spoke of the Bible, he spoke of it as it was literal. He spoke of it as it was factual, as it was a historical fact. Contrary to many liberal scholars today, uh, Jesus' opinion of the scriptures was that they were fully inspired by God, even to the smallest letter. Matthew chapter 5, verse 18 tells us, I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Until heaven and earth disappear, nothing is going to change. Jesus is underlining, he's underscoring his feeling for the scripture. Jesus considered the scripture to be authoritative. John chapter 10, verse 35, Jesus spoke and tells us, the scripture cannot be broken. You know, you begin to use these as building blocks. 
The scripture was inspired. The scripture cannot be broken. When shortly after Jesus' baptism, he was led to the desert and he was tempted by the devil three times. How did he respond? He responded by quoting scripture. Jesus taught his disciples that the scripture taught about him. In one particularly notable passage, this is what Jesus had to say as he was speaking with his disciples. How foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe that all the prophets or believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. In these verses, Jesus talks about Moses and the prophets. So he's really talking about the entirety of the Old Testament. So again, Jesus, who rose from the dead, placed all the credence in the world on the accuracy, on the authenticity of the Bible being God's word. If Jesus believed the Bible to be true, if literary critics believe that what we have is the Bible that was intended, and as we see the evidence of fulfilled prophecy, doesn't that lead us to believe that this Bible we have God's word is his text message to us, for us. And uh, for those uh, who are interested in, in actually receiving a little bit more information on this, uh, in your program is a bright yellow card about an investigative Bible study. We'll be doing a bunch of these investigative Bible studies where this is part of what we'll be talking about. And so if you're interested in that, just sign up on your connection card and we'll be in contact with you quickly. So as we close, there are a few next steps that I'd like you to take a look at. First, memorize 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. Again, that's where we started, where Peter explains to us that the Bible is God's inspired word to us. Second, also in your program uh, is a handout that has a number of verses that we did not cover this morning talking about... Um, God's inspiration of the Bible, I would challenge you to read those for yourself. And then finally, because the Bible is God's message to us, is God's word to us, I would challenge each of us, myself included, to read that Bible each day so that I can learn more and more about what he wants me to know. Join me in prayer. Our Father, thank you so much that uh, you cared about us enough and you uh, took the time that through your chosen people, uh, you've communicated yourself to us so that we do have the ability to, to know you, not just know about you, Father, but to really get to know you and how you want to uh, be with us, how you want to relate to us, and how you want to help us as we live our lives. Father, thank you that uh, there's so much evidence pointing to the fact that this is your word and that we can be completely confident that when we read the Bible, we're reading what you have to say for us. Thanks again for all you do. In your name we pray. Amen.